If you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open it up to Romans chapter 9. And if you don't have one with you, you'll find one in the pew rack right in front of you, or you can follow along up on the screen. If your head is uh, still spinning at the end of this teaching, I understand, um, because mine is. I've been in this passage for uh, quite a while, and um, I still haven't come to terms with all that it has to say. Um, Romans 9 is a front door for us into the Christmas story. And you may be wondering why, if you know the, the book of Romans and Romans 9 especially, and I'm going to help you see why this morning. Um, especially you would have that reaction because you know that Romans 9 has to do with predestination and, and election. And here's my premise to start this out with. It's the very top thing on your notes this morning in your bulletin. Um, it, my premise is this. There, there are things that God has called you to or is going to call you to that are beyond your capacity to grasp in the moment that it's happening to you. There's good hard and there's bad hard. And let me give an example. Paul going to Mars Hill to speak before the intellectuals of his time. Good hard. Um, I know it was a big challenge for him, but he's a great debater. He loved speaking in that time period and debating with people about the things of God. That's a good hard. Versus Paul in the Roman prison the second time, the last three months of his life, in utter darkness, 24 hours of black, just a little bit of a light piercing through the cracks in the floor. That's bad hard. There's things that God calls us to that surpass our ability to grasp the significance of it in that moment that it's happening. Here's a question for you. What is the difficult thing that God has called you to or is asking you to endure in this moment? And it may not be necessarily something that you're personally going through, but maybe you're watching someone else go through it. And you're left wondering, what's going on here? Why? Some of you are in that moment right now. I know, because I know your stories. Some of you are going through some really, really deep water. Others have waded through the deep water. One thing is certain, no matter where you're at on that storyline, it changes your view of God. It alters the way you approach God. It shapes you. That's kind of what Romans 9 is about. So I need to start with these two thoughts this morning. Two distinct levels of understanding. And in order to do this first one, I I need to use the National Football League as an example. So I know you guys are going to be bored with this, but just bear with me, okay? Um, Let's use the NFL and what's known as the draft pick. I'm going to use Bryant McKinney as an example. Uh, What you're going to see on the screen is a picture of Bryant McKinney when he was drafted to play for the Minnesota Vikings. He's number 74, a very large individual. He's a left tackle. Bryant McKinney could pound you into the ground. He is nearly seven foot tall, and he weighs 360 pounds. But that's on the conservative side. We're told he hasn't really reported his real weight. He was drafted by the Minnesota Vikings in the first round, first round draft pick. He now plays for the Miami Dolphins, but the reason he was chosen because of the unique abilities he brings to the table. 
Matter of fact, the Minnesota Vikings anteed up a $36 million contract to bring him out of college onto their team because of his abilities. Now, it's really hard to appreciate a giant when he's sitting or standing among other giants, but when you see this next image of him next to a normal person, you'll get an understanding of who he is. New appreciation, right? Okay. Bryant McKinney is a first-round draft pick chosen by the Miami Vikings, taken to the Miami Dolphins. Here's what's unique about the NFL and their draft. Someone had to want him. Someone had to want him to the degree that they were willing to ante up a huge sum of money for what he could do. Let's take Bryant McKinney and set him on the shelf and just put that one out of your mind. The truth according to the Bible is, every one of you, if you held up the cup this morning and you held up the bread and said, I belong to Jesus, you are a first-round draft pick. God chose you. Scripture actually says, He foreknew you. Before He formed you in the womb, He knew who would choose Him, who would decide to follow Him, and He chose also to select you. You're a first-round draft pick. You see, where does that come from? Romans 8, chapter 29. Let me show you this and remind you on the screen. Romans 8, 29 says this, Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And verse 30 says this, And these whom He predestined, He also called. So if He called you, that means He chose you because if someone's calling you, they chose to connect with you. And that's the case with God. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're chosen, church. Can you say that with me? I'm chosen. One, two, three. I am chosen. And there's a great sense of confidence that goes with that. Knowing that you belong to Him. That He chose you. Now that's one component of it. That He called and He chose us. But the second part of that verse also says that He chose us not just for salvation, but He chose us to be conformed to the image of His Son. So it's really important that we understand this word conformed. In the Greek language, and I only have two Greek words in your notes this morning, this first one's kind of interesting, sumorphos. And here's why it's interesting. It's a compound word. And the Greeks didn't always do that. The first part of it is the word sum. You see it in your notes, but on the screen as well. And it has this meaning behind it of someone coming alongside another individual. So let me illustrate it for you this way. I'll stand next to the Chesters, and I'll use, if you guys don't mind me using them for, you for an example. You don't have a choice anyway, so, okay. All right, so I could say, I'm standing alongside John Chester. I could even be right here in his daughter's seat and say that we're singing together when there's worship going on. But that's not the same as being intertwined with him like Monica and John are when Scripture says they're one flesh joined together. That's the word picture behind the word sum, meaning that someone has been grafted to another one. So that's the first part of this compound word picture, sum. And then we're more familiar with the second part, morphe. The, the word morph, we use it in the English language, meaning a change or a shape, an alteration to some characteristic of a person. So here's what's going on in this word conformed. Someone, us, has been chosen by God to be conformed, drawn in, grafted into Jesus to the degree that He actually changes our shape, who we are, our characteristic, that kind of conforming. 
So we've been conformed into the image of Jesus, not conformed to look like an angel or like a cherubim, as awesome as they are, but conformed to the image of the King of Kings, the Prince of Peace, the ruler of the universe. That's what we've been chosen for. Now, let's take this chosen thought and put that aside. How did he get you? How did he come to the place where he owns you? He bought us. God the Father laid down the largest negotiated contract ever in the history of the universe, not just in the history of the world. He put out the largest negotiated sum possible, his own personal son, the King of Kings, the Lord of glory, was offered up as the price to buy us back. So let's take that and set that aside. And it takes us to the next question. Wait, didn't I choose God? Scripture you're telling me, Mark, this morning says that God chose me. Did I not have a role in it? So did I choose God or did God choose me? The answer is yes. Good with that? Many people are not. What role do I play? Well, obviously you had to come to the point where you accepted the fact that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. You had to accept the fact that you're destined for hell and condemned. You had to come to the place where you accepted the fact that Jesus came and put away death and conquered sin. And you had to come to the place where you believed it. So yeah, you played a role in it. So even though God is sovereign, according to the argument Paul's laying out here in Romans 9, as you're going to see it, it doesn't set aside human responsibility. So the fact remains, the King of Kings and this Maker of the universe who's enthroned in glory, and here's the absolute preposterous part of this thought. He willingly walked away from everything that he had to become a baby, to grow up as a human, to be nailed to a cross, to be buried in the cold, dark earth, and then to be resurrected to glory. It's the good news, church. It sounds preposterous. And especially to people at the time of Christmas or at the time of Easter, when they're trying to process this information, people outside the church, when they hear this information, it sounds unbelievable. Paul recognized that. The disciples recognized that. They knew that this argument was something that sounded so far out there that they had to even write about it. Look with me on the screen at 1 Corinthians. Paul said this in chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. It's a great argument. He's right. Let's move forward. We could stop right here, though. We We could stop right here and go home because this in itself is enough to chew on for millennia. But we had to start there because we have to understand with the fact that we're chosen. That's the first level. Let's move on to the second level because what you need to understand is more than just about being chosen. It's about God's purpose for you. So here's the second level. God not only chose you for salvation, He chose you to be an object of His glory. That's an amazing thought. I want to help develop that thought with you. And it's absolutely crucial that we grasp this component of biblical knowledge. If you're going to function on planet Earth in the manner that God intends you to function as a follower of Jesus, you've got to grasp this. Now, the the Bible is filled with examples of God's choosing. Noah, 
Noah didn't know how to build an ark. He didn't go to ark building school. He was just told by God, you're going to build an ark. King David, he'd never been king before. He was a shepherd. He didn't know it was going to lead to him having to live in caves and then eventually ascend to the throne. Jonah, where do you go to learn about being swallowed by a whale? Okay, those events had never happened before, but God said, you're going to go and do this thing that I want you to do. He was chosen. Peter, Paul, what about Mary in the Christmas story? Well, we're going to come back to that in just a moment. Know this, in every single case, every single individual in the Bible whom God chose, He chose for a reason, to put Himself on display for His glory. So let me revisit and reestablish this with you. First of all, we're all first-round draft picks, every single one of us. There's no second round with God. He foreknew, He predestined, and God has chosen us. And being chosen by God brings this sense of amazing confidence. And God chooses us not just for salvation, but for a very distinct purpose. And Romans 9 helps us understand that. Go forward with me to Romans chapter 9 and verse 16. We're just going to be in it for a minute, but here's what I want you to understand. In Romans chapter 9, Paul's making this argument for why Israel rejected Jesus. And in verse 16, we pick it up midstream, and this is what it says. Verse 16, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So we've got Pharaoh who pops on the scene. The king of Egypt. God says, I elevated you to the highest position in the land, the most powerful nation in the earth at that period of time. And God says, here's the reason why I did it. That I might display in you the evidence of my power and my glory. So here's what's really clear. God's plan was being advanced even while the children of Israel were slaves. I'll let that register with you for a minute. When things feel like they're spinning out of control, your life is falling apart, or you're going through the really, really hard circumstances, and it feels like God does not have control, God's assuring us, I got this. I've raised this one up, Pharaoh, for a specific reason, to put my power on display. Now, what we find Paul doing is he's quoting the book of Exodus. Literally, Moses was told by God to go into Pharaoh's throne room and stand before him and say, yeah, you're not all that great. God puts you where you're at. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen at this quote, 9.16, Exodus 9.16, but for this purpose I have raised you up, Moses speaking on behalf of God, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So we're told according to Scripture that purpose of Pharaoh's appearance as a world leader is that God would display his power So what God did with the plagues in crushing Egypt was so that God's power would be put on display. And not that Pharaoh's purposes would be advanced, but that God's purposes would be advanced and that God's name would be made great. Now Paul recognizes as you move on that there's some pushback. With God being sovereign and controlling everything, here's the pushback, and Paul represents it in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So we've got to come to the point where we recognize there's a mystery going on here that is beyond our comprehension, and it causes questions. Paul's point is it causes legitimate questions and illegitimate questions. And you come to the illegitimate questions, and you've got to let them go. So his answer in verse 20 is not really an answer. It's a rebuke to those who would say, God, you're going to answer to the humans because we're going to put you on trial and ask. So he uses Isaiah as this argument. Isaiah 45, and he, he quotes about clay. What you might not know about me is um, before I was a, a pastor and a Bible major in college, I was an aviation major in college. And before I was an aviation major in college, I was an art major in college. So three different majors. And as an art major, um, one of the things that made me do, even though I, I love doing sketches and painting, um, they made me work with clay. And so they would give us lumps of clay, and we were responsible to throw it on the wheel and do the potter thing. I never once had that clay say to me, what are you doing? Clay doesn't do that, does it? It just does what the potter tells it to do, to shape it. Well, that's Isaiah's point here. Isaiah 45, 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Now, clearly, the potter has authority over the clay. You and I are way more than clay. We're eternal beings with intellect, with physical capacity. God created us for a purpose, but his point is the created cannot call the creator to account. So Paul's saying there's questions that we ask that are totally illegitimate. Let them go. But rather, what he does is he pushes back with a question. Now, if you feel like you've been digesting meat to this point, we're about to dive into the pot roast. Here's where it gets really deep. Go with me to verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called. You see what he's done? He's gone full circle. All the way back around to the thinking of the fact that you're chosen, you're called, and God's got a purpose in this. Even though we understand there's a new point being brought out here, not, not necessarily new, but deeper, a perspective. Even those of you who held up the cup this morning and who held up the bread and said, I belong to Jesus, at one time in your life, you were vessels of wrath before you knew Jesus Christ, before you came into relationship with the Savior of the world who would take away your sins, you would be one of those vessels of wrath, an object of God's wrath. But the objects of wrath are not summarily dismissed according to what we see here. Rather, God exercises great patience. Let's use Pharaoh as an example. Pharaoh had the power of God unleashed upon him. He saw water turn to blood, billions of frogs, plague after plague after plague, hail, fire, earthquakes, God visible on earth, and yet that one, even though God showed great patience to him, hardened his heart and walked away from God. That indicates to me there's more to be understood about why we deserve wrath, but here's what it also reveals. According to verse 22, although it was God's will to show wrath, he postpones that action against our life. 
for the purpose of showing patience that we might turn from sin and become followers of Jesus. Look with me on the screen, Romans 2.4. I don't know if you've read this before, especially in this light. Look at God's patience. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Have you ever been one of those individuals who tried the patience of God? I hear laughs, but my hand's up, okay? Because I've done it. I see a few of you weaklings, come on. You know what I'm talking about, okay? There's a period of time before you were a follower of Jesus when you really probably tried the patience of God. And even after a follower of Jesus, we can try the patience of God. So we're told, according to this passage, that God endures us. He bore us with great patience. So hear me on this. You're going to see this on the screen develop. I was wrestling through this at 1 in the morning on Friday night, and it's only fair that you wrestle through it too. Okay. Objects of wrath, us, became objects of His mercy for the purpose that we would become objects of His glory. See, it's more than just about your salvation. Here's where most people are really good. They're really good with the second phase. It's like Willy Wonka's golden ticket. I'm an object of His mercy. I've been chosen. Hallelujah, praise Jesus. And they miss that we're also objects of His glory. So most people function as though they've been given the golden ticket and I'm going on the tour with Willy Wonka himself and I'm going into those gates and I'm going to see the chocolate factory and they totally miss planet Earth. The understanding that we're an object of His glory and we're supposed to be reflecting His glory. So here's a logical question. Most people would say, how do I become an object of His glory? I want that. Because that means I've got purpose for my life. How does that happen that I would become an object of His glory? Could this same application be made to Mary? Could this same application be made to your life and the difficult circumstance that you're going through? Very quickly, what I would like to do with you is go to Luke chapter 1 and look at the Christmas story through this lens. And I know what you're thinking. Well, he, he's starting a new passage? No, not really. I'm completing for you what we're looking at. So if you've got your Bible, look at Luke chapter 1, and we're going to look at this very quickly through this lens of hard situations. Here's what we're told. Mary's going about her business, and she's doing her normal household responsibilities, and an angel shows up. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says this, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. I need you to put your mind in the framework of a teenage girl. You too, guys. I know it's not easy to do. Okay, you got to put your dresses on for this one and think. Life is good. She's engaged to be married to a man who has a career, who has a future, who has a reputation in the community. He's a carpenter, a highly valued position in the first century. And in first century Israel, 
Your reputation is everything. So she's a young lady who goes to the synagogue. She worships God. She knows the name Yehovah. She lifts her arms in praise when the choir sings. She's got a good life. And she's got a wedding date coming up, so she's working on wedding plans. She's got a guy. She's got a wedding. Her future looks bright. And something not normal has invaded her world. Go with me to verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept wondering what kind of salutation this was. And now we get an uh, insight into the framework of the thinking of Mary. In this moment, there's fear and there's confusion because her world has just been disrupted. How do I know that? The word diatrasso is used. We see in the English language the word perplexed. Here's what diatrasso is. You have a washing machine at home? It has a center stem, an agitator. That agitator roils back and forth and it disturbs the water. That's diatrasso. She's troubled. She's upset. She's agitated. Not mad, angry, agitated. She's consumed with fear. How do I know that? Look with me at verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. She had to be afraid for him to say that. And it's natural, facing what she is. Because she's been chosen, because God identified her and said, That one, and I'm going to use her to show my glory and put myself on display. And so she's going to take on a responsibility which is going to help fulfill God's plan. Now life is good, and her world is about to be turned upside down. A teenage girl, 14, 16 years of age, who's about to be told that she's going to become pregnant, and people aren't going to believe her. Very few will even understand what she's going through. The angel's about to drop a bombshell. And she's going to be asked to endure something no one has ever been asked to endure before. Go forward with me to verse 31. And the angel said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. What if God had stopped right there and didn't tell her the rest of the story? What if God didn't fill in the blanks for her? It is very, very hard to go through hard circumstances if you don't know the why. It's much easier to endure difficult situations when you know the reason. Ultimately, we would say as believers, well, for the glory of God. My mind goes immediately to a pastor in Iran who this morning while we're here is sitting in a prison cell. A young man who's an American who has children and his wife here in the States who decided to go to Iran and witness for the name of Jesus was grabbed by the governing authorities and thrown into jail. Because he named the name Jesus. And I read in Fox News this week, even though he's been in prison for 14 months, this week I read that he's not only been in prison, the other inmates have been beating him, and the guards are encouraging that. This man has suffered internal damage to his organs. His family shipped medicine over to him through the Red Cross, and yet they won't give him his medicine. And the most recent report says he's covered in lice and he can't sleep. So he's going through sleep deprivation because these lice are consuming his skin. Now, in that moment, you'd want to know that what you're going through is for the glory of God. 
that you're advancing the name of Jesus. Well, God recognizes in the case of Mary, she's got to have the pieces of the puzzle put together. It's not enough just to say, you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to go through this really hard time. So God fills in the blanks. Verse 32, he says, here's the why, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And for a young Jewish girl in first century Israel, she doesn't have to do much to put the pieces together. She knows that all of that is code for the Mashiach. She's going to be the mother of the Messiah. That's why God gave her the pieces. So Mary's got this natural response. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? This is her wait what moment. What did you just say? You know what I'm talking about here if you've been here the last couple weeks. It's a fair question, right? Now, she's not doing it like Sarah, like we looked at last week. She's not laughing in the face of God. She's not doubting God's ability. She's looking for clarification. This is a request. I see no indication of doubting. I see no indication of challenging. Rather, there's a recognition. She's being asked to carry something which goes beyond her ability to grasp in the moment. How can this be? So Gabriel explains she doesn't need to do anything. The formation of the baby in her womb is going to be a result of God's activity. God does it all. We merely just respond to the call. Look with me at this last part, verse 35. Then the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. This is just God authenticating, saying there is nothing impossible with me. Matter of fact, that's how the story ends. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God, Mary. Same thing God said to Sarah last week. Same thing Jesus said to the disciples when they're trying to figure out about this issue of rich people getting into heaven. Nothing is impossible with God. So here's where we end. For you, what will emerge from the difficult situation that you're facing today? Or will face tomorrow? Or have faced in the past? What will emerge for you if you take this current situation and you give it over to God for the glory of God. See, the truth is about this story, and we're going to explore it much more in depth next week. The truth is, God knew that He could trust Mary. If you're dealing with a difficult situation that God clearly has led you into, He knows that He can trust you with it. He can trust you to give Him glory in the midst of difficult situations because God's all about making his name great and bringing glory upon himself. So it's for the glory of God. See, this really speaks to the issue of why God allows pain and difficult circumstances. Even when all the pieces don't line up and it looks like things are out of control, God says, I got this. I'm good with that. I'm good with ending right there. I know many times I try and give you application points to take out. You're going to have to draw your own this time. Hopefully you did a lot of writing in the notes. I think that God's Spirit was alive and spoke. 
So here's why I want to close. I want, I want to close with prayer. And when I get into the end of it, I'm going to read as part of the prayer, Jude chapter 1, verse 24. So let's pray, church. Father, we know that by entering into your presence just by speaking your name, our prayers are ascending before you. You hear the cry of your people in this auditorium. You know what's on their hearts. You even know the confusion that might be there right now. You know where our minds race around issues like this. But in the midst of all that, God, you are the one who causes your word to be sustained. You said that you made it alive. Father, even if we feel like we've missed some of this, bring to recollection this week the things that you want us to learn. As we move forward towards Christmas, God, teach us. Teach us what it means to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are looking for ways to be more than just objects of your mercy, but also to be objects of your glory. Father, I know that you can do this through the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever and ever and ever. Amen.